Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Well, if we're going to follow these commands of Jesus, we are going to be doormats. Jesus does, uh, must not have meant, he must not have meant what he said here. We can't go around being punched and kicked and robbed and just do nothing about it, right? As people of the word, we want to take uh, this text seriously and we want to answer the question, is that really what Jesus is saying? We want to understand him clearly and it's probably not very clear right now. So I want to dive into the text and see what exactly is Jesus saying here? Are we really to be doormats? All right, first of all, notice that Jesus is speaking to those who hear. He says to those who hear. In other words, These commands, first of all, are for those who have ears of faith, for those who are believers. They have heard the gospel. They have placed their trust in Christ. So these commands are for them. To us believers, he says, love your enemies. And everything else that he says after that hangs on that basic injunction. Love your enemies. Enemies. Everything's motivated by that. Love your enemies. If you think that Jesus in in giving us these commands is showing disregard for our well-being, I can assure you it is quite the opposite. You see, when someone strikes you wrongfully, you have a choice. You can seek revenge or you can forgive. But these choices have strings attached. Vengeance brings With it, anger, resentment, hostility, passion. It's better to suffer another blow than to fill your heart with anger. And likewise, uh, it's better to let a thing be stolen than with a selfish heart to clamor for its return. So what Jesus is protecting is your heart. You may say, but it's my right to retain my property from thieves. It's my right not to be assaulted. Yeah, you're quite correct. That's true. However, you also have the freedom to lay aside your own desires, to forego the justice that is due to you for the sake of the love that you bear toward another. And yes, love even for an enemy. You have the freedom to show that love. Thankfully, we have an example of this in Christ Jesus. He didn't die for you because you're such a wonderful, virtuous, self-righteous person. He didn't look down from heaven in eternity past and say, gee, Pastor Brown is such a good guy. I think I'm going to come down and take upon myself his sins Because he's just such a good guy. 
No, he looked and he saw me and you. He saw everyone in all our fullness, the good, the bad, the ugly. He saw the low point, the lowest point in your life, the sin that you committed that you said to yourself, there's no way I can ever overcome this sin. The one that's so besetting that makes you, it just drives you to despair. He looked at that sin and he saw you then and said, yeah, I will come. I will die for you. That's what Jesus did. Talk about love your enemy. That's what we were. We were enemies of Jesus when he laid his life down for you. You were an enemy of Jesus when he did that. Recall that Jesus prayed for his executioners. You probably remember this. Forgive them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even as he was being executed, he was praying for them. Forgive them, Father. And then we have an example in the first martyr. Who was the first martyr in the church? Stephen. Yeah, Stephen prayed for those who were stoning him to death. Lord, do not hold this against them. Even in his martyrdom, as Stephen was being stoned to death, he was praying, Lord, don't hold this against them. When someone strikes you, it hurts. We carry that physical and emotional pain. However, the one who dealt the blow is rebelling against God. They're dooming themselves to eternal damnation. Of all people, they ought to be pitied the most. For the pain and suffering that believers experience now in this life is a fleeting moment. It's temporary. It's ephemeral. It passes. And we have an eternity in fellowship, intimate fellowship with God to look forward to. Whereas the one who persists in their sin has eternal hellfire awaiting them. So they, of all people, should be pitied. Now, Proverbs 25 says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will be, you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. It starts out nice. You know, it's like, if your enemy needs something, give it to him. Then it's like, because by giving it to him, you're going to be heaping coals on them. So is this like God cold and indifferent toward your enemy saying, just Just confirm them in their sins so that I can damn them to hell. No, of course not. (laughs) No, Uh, what it is 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 that you have an opportunity by overcoming evil with good to bring people to saving faith. Um, It's possible and many times has been the case that a demonstration of this this love, like this, this... selfless love, a love that's directed toward your enemy, a love that in our world is totally upside down. I mean, it has no place in our economy of love in our, in our, to our human reason. If this is foreign to our human reason, this is a love for your enemy that can only come from faith. And there are many times where a demonstration of this love has brought about faith, Faith in a hardened, stone-cold heart. But it brings out about repentance. There are many who were 
persecutors who became believers through the witness of submission, through the witness of what the world would call weakness and weird, you know, this, this unconditional love that Christians show, not just toward each other, but toward an enemy. And yet that very act is what brings them to faith. And this is the same love that Jesus has shown us on the cross. And so by modeling that, we are reflecting that love for people that would persecute us. Jesus is most definitely instructing us to love our enemies here. After all, everyone, even sinners, love the ones who benefit them. But this love that we have for an enemy is a special kind of love that you don't just manifest in yourself. God gives this to you. You know, God works that in us through faith. Verse 31 is often referred to as the golden rule. This is where Jesus said, and as you wish that others would do to you, so do, do, so, sorry, do so to them. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Sometimes it's said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Yeah, there's a perversion of it that's uh, do to others before they do to you. Yeah, no, that's not the golden rule. But there is also a, um, uh, well, before I say this, I want, just want to point out that to say do unto others as you would have them do unto you is active. This is not, this is an affirmative, active thing. Love motivates you to do to others as you would have them do to you. Now, there is a lesser um, uh, so-called brass rule, less than the golden rule. But that's pretty much the way the world understands this rule. And there are many dictums that are out there that uh, would say, um, uh, do not do to others what you would not want them to do to you. That's, all, that's, a, that's a counterfeit. Okay, that's not the golden rule because that involves a negative statement. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. That is just crass legalism. And that's why uh, it's Richard Lenski, the Lutheran theologian, um, that refers to it as the brass rule because it's a lesser rule. By the way, this is a side note, but um, we've been talking lately about the apocryphal books. If you read the excerpt from last week, then you'd see that um, there were certain books that are in the Septuagint, which is the Greek uh, translation of the Old Testament. And those, those, there are seven books that were in there. They're like um, Wisdom, uh, Sirach, First and Second Maccabees, Tobit. Okay, these are books that were in the Greek version of the Old Testament. But they were not in the Masoretic text, which is the Hebrew Old Testament. So for that reason, when Luther translated the Bible, he worked from the Masoretic text and he said, those seven books are not part of the proper canon of Scripture. They are important and we'll keep them. And he did. He kept them in his Bible, but he he put them in their own section. Now, if you pick up a Roman Catholic Bible, you'll see that these books of the Apocrypha are interspersed throughout. So you can't tell which is part of the canon of Scripture and which isn't unless you just happen to know that. So, um, and in fact, the Bibles in your pews and many 
so-called Protestant Bibles now don't even have the Apocrypha in them. That's like a totally separate thing. But there's good reason for that. I mean, number one, it was not part of the canon of Scripture. Um, It was not in the Masoretic text. The other thing is here, uh, Tobit, one of those apocryphal books, uh, says, See thou never do to another what thou wouldst hate to have done to thee by another. In other words, uh, don't do to another what you don't want them to do to you, which is the negative counterfeit golden rule. That's the brass rule. That's not the golden rule. The golden rule is, it's, it's unbounded. How much can you show your love toward your enemy or toward another? That's a, that's a wide open, just begging you to do for others. Whereas this brass rule is just like a, a very negative, you know, just don't do to them what you don't want done to you. You know, it's, it gives people an excuse kind of to mind their own business, frankly, as opposed to loving their neighbor. So anyway, that's the brass rule. Well, that's in Tobit as, as scripture. So if we were going to treat the Apocrypha as scripture, then there would be a conflict there because that's not, that's, that's not correct. But as I said, we don't treat that apocryphal book as scripture. It's part of the Apocrypha. Um, anyway, that's just kind of a side note. All right, does this all mean that we are to be doormats, right? That we must accept it. No. You're probably hoping I was going to say, no, please tell me I don't just have to (laughs) constantly be abused by the world. Well, I don't know. Sort of we do. I don't know. That's not exactly what it means. Remember that love is the basic principle by which we are free to extend forgiveness, to turn the other cheek, to allow ourselves to be wrong. We're within our rights not to be wronged, but we are within our Christian freedom to allow that slight, to allow that abuse, whatever it, whatever it might be. Now, Matthias Loy, who's one of the great fathers of the American Lutheran Church, made an excellent statement on this subject, and I want to quote from him. If a ruffian strikes me in willful wickedness or in conscious violation of all law, takes away my property to gratify his greed or spite or in bare malice to inflict an injury upon me, asks me to give or lend him my money or goods without any claim to suffering or need on his part. Shall I understand Christ's words to mean that the love which the Holy Spirit has given me will find its appropriate expression in yielding to his satanic assaults and demands and even doubling my loving compliance with his ungodly desires? You can kind of tell the way he phrased the question that he's going to answer, I think not. You know, In other words, it's not loving to just suffer continual abuse for nothing. I mean, you're allowing the sin to, to continue, okay? So we don't, um, actually, Richard Lenski, uh, quoting from him again, or loosely quoting from him, he sort of characterizes it this way. Christ's commands are not to be applied mechanically or in foolish blindness, which loses sight of the true purpose of love coupled with selfless love, is wisdom, 
which applies love. So the principle behind all of this is love toward our neighbor. So no, we don't just apply it mechanically and it's like somebody punches you in the face and you just say, oh, well, here, punch this side too. That's not the point. That is not the point in this. If my neighbor was being robbed, it would be loving for me to stop the robber. Okay, I'm loving my neighbor by protecting them from this lawbreaker. That's love. The executioner who takes the person to the gallows and kicks the bucket out from under them. That can be a loving thing. Uh, I know how strange that sounds, how odd. But this act is justice being carried out. Now, granted, it requires an impartial court and it requires a proper hearing and all of these things. Uh, the executioner doesn't have any personal resentment toward the person they execute. They are simply carrying out justice for love of their neighbor. Therefore, that is not an unloving thing to do. They are doing their duty. The police officer who shoots someone and kills them in the course of defending the lives of others. The military uh, man who shoots and kills you know, his, his enemy. That's not an unloving thing to do, provided that he's, he's doing that in love toward the neighbors whom he is protecting. So we can't look at it and just apply it you know, mechanically uh, and, and say, oh, well, that's it. We're all going to become pacifists now. You know? Everyone put down your guns and, and we're all pacifists. That's not the point in this. Likewise, there's confusion over this command. Judge not and you will not be judged. This is often misquoted and misapplied by omitting the connection to the command to love. It's not loving, for example, to watch a person running toward a cliff and just ignore them. Stop! There's a cliff! If you keep running that way, you're going to fall off the cliff and die. So please stop. Oh, that's so judgmental of you. Where do you get off telling me whether or not I should run in this direction or that direction? Well, I just happen to know there's a cliff in this direction. So stop. I'm telling you to stop in love. I tell you to stop. And that same thing applies to judge not. Too often this becomes... Oh, well, you can't tell a person that that, that's sin. That's unkind. You're judging them. Don't judge them. Don't judge, you know, glass houses, all that kind of, you know, all of these uh, mantras come out, you know. Uh, Oh, let he who's without sin cast the first stone. Well, look, I would submit to you that it is unloving if I see a person walking, running, skipping, frolicking to hell to just leave them there. That's not loving. Loving is to say, God is a holy and righteous God. And you are walking in the wrong direction. And there's good news for you. We're not just going to leave you dead in your sins. That's not what God does. That's not how God loves us.
When Jesus said, judge not, he was referring to a a self-righteous kind of judging, the the sort of judging that's done to to convict others and, and acquit yourself, right? It's the kind of judging where it's like, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. That's the kind of judging that he is condemning. Don't, don't judge that way. We don't judge that way. But that doesn't mean we don't exercise discernment. <clears throat> Some would say, uh, um, you know, you're, you're judging uh, just, to, just to point out anything. I mean, we've, 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 the society that we're in is so sensitive about this. So maybe it helps to have an ounce of humility and just to say right off the bat, our church is for sinners. That's what this this church here is for sinners. If you've already been made perfect and clean and righteous, you're already righteous, you don't need us. You only need us here if you walk through the door and you do, as we do, confess your sins at the very beginning. Before a holy and righteous God, we confess our sins. That's what... That's what church is for. All right, this sermon is already long, and we have a congregational meeting, so I'm going to wrap this up now. God has everything under control. He does. He's got it all. God has given us order in our society. Yes, believe it or not, there is still order. We have police, sheriffs, courts. As my grandfather would call it, the local constabulary. He liked to use big words sometimes. Of course, every human institution will fail. Everything, everything is touched by sin. So we can't expect any of our institutions to be perfect. But remember this, there is no government, none, that has not been instituted by God. Remember that. God works his will in spite of the evil deeds of sinful people. Dare I say, and this this might be shocking, God works his will through those evil deeds. He even goes so far as to lay claim to those deeds as his own. That's what Joseph is explaining to his brothers when he said, it wasn't you that sent me here, but it was God. God is the one who sent me here so that I might save many and preserve a remnant. They threw him in a pit and they sold him into slavery. And Joseph said to them, that wasn't you guys that did that. That was God. God lays claim to this evil. And he makes it his own for the benefit of all. He turns everything upside down. Trusting in the promises of God, forgiveness of our sins on account of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for you, The promise that God is in control, that he will provide for you, you're free. Free to love your enemy as Christ loved you even when you were his enemy. Take heart. Take heart. In Christ, you are, as Jesus said, sons of the Most High. What more? What more do we need than that? You have everything in Christ. It cannot fade or be destroyed. What you have in Christ cannot be taken from you. You have that. It never fails. 
And it is the love that Christ has shown for you on the cross. On the cross. The peace of God which passes all understanding. Keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.